Ariel, listen to me. The human world, it's a mess. Life under the sea is better than anything they got up there. Hello, and this is your weekly Let's Fix Football. This is your host, Gabe Lezra, and uh, I am joined by a very, I think, very happy Evan Mateer. <laughs> Evan, how you doing, buddy? Uh, some might say buzzing. Absolutely buzzing. Well, that's good. I, um, on the other hand, am a uh, bit down, but that's okay. I'm uh, drinking, actually, uh, I decided to splurge on a pretty solid bottle of wine. I'm drinking a Barolo. Um, it was only 30 bucks, so, but like that's like... 20 bucks more than I normally spend. <laughs> I'm a uh, so I'm drinking like a Bordeaux that I left open mm. overnight so it's just like a little bit sour but yep. I don't care cuz I'm not wasting wine. Nope, you're not wasting wine and that's an important thing. I um I mean, you know wine only really turns into alcohol if you leave it out overnight anyway. That's right, it just gets more alcohol, yeah, I've heard. <laughs> uh so we have a lot to get to today. We obviously um have our Ernesto interview that's actually pretty long so we're going to we're going to keep it, you know, the whole thing in. So Evan and I are only going to speak for about half an hour before we get into that because that's great. I really can't sell that high enough. It's it's a really interesting conversation with Ernesto about PSG, about um, the different scandals involving uh, some you know the, the the local Spanish organization and then the Catalan independence uh, declaration. We we talked about all that and sporting implications of all that different stuff. So that's a great interview. That's at the end of the show. Uh, but before that, um, we have to talk about what I would call what I think is probably the two thousand pound. Uh, Lily White in the room, <laughs> which is um, a Tottenham Hotspur's uh, destruction of Real Madrid uh, in the Champions League, three to one at White Hart Lane. It could have been much more than three to one. Madrid played a terrible game, and Tottenham simultaneously played a great game. It was a thorough beatdown, as this Real Madrid under Zidane have had the last two years, and. Um, yeah, yeah, it's 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 a huge result for Spurs, who are going to likely qualify as first from the group. Yeah, I mean, so let's be clear. They are qualified through, which is just amazing, right? Because this is a team that crapped out of what was supposed to be a really easy group last year. I mean, now it turned out to be harder than everyone thought because Monaco turned out to be Monaco. But, um, Spurs but really, still... Spurs and Monaco should have gone through in that group. Yeah, abs- absolutely, they should have gone through. And, you know, so they didn't even break group stages last year. And then, you know, this we, we talked a couple weeks ago after the first tie. And I was excited just because Spurs competed with Madrid. Um, so the concept that they would not only beat Madrid, but beat them soundly. I mean, they did beat them on X goal and the X goal, I think even flattered Madrid. It was 2.2 to two, um, which, and, and Madrid put a lot of those X goals together. Two point, I saw 2.8 to 2.2, but regardless. Yeah. Depending on your formula, they can change a little bit, but I mean, and, and I know that Madrid in, in all cases was racking up a lot of those X goals after they were already down three to nothing. Um, and so that could be a little quirk, but so, I mean, the point is that Spurs beat Madrid and they beat them very soundly. So they didn't just compete, but they came out, um, and proved, I think that, you know, there's no reason to think the Spurs can't play with the best teams in the world. I mean, you know, it, it, I'm, I'm trying my hardest not to get like too carried away. Um, Spurs still have problems with 
with there, there's injuries, they have problems with squad depth, they are young and can be a little bit inconsistent. But on the other hand, there, there's just no question in my mind that going to the knockout stages, like if we fucking draw Barcelona, fine, let's fucking go. We could maybe, like, I'm not saying we would beat Barcelona or that we would be favored against Barcelona, but we could beat Barcelona. Right, or like um, Juve or whatever. Or Juve or someone, right? And that's just a ridiculously cool feeling for a Spurs fan where when I started being, you know, I started following Spurs probably about 2011, 2012 or so. Um, like, it was just like, hey, let's finish fifth. Yeah. Uh, I um, mean, as a Madrid fan, um, the reaction to this game has been, you know, it, it actually has been not I'm as sure. bad as the pre the previous weekend's game. Madrid is in a just a putrid run of form as I mean, basically, Madrid hasn't had a bad run of form since uh, December of 2015. Uh, and so, like, this is the first bad run of form under Zidane, and he's been coached since January of uh, 2016. And. I mean, look, that's that's awesome for Madrid, and and it's been it's been a great run. Uh, and there are a lot of issues with the team, and and the team that went into you know to, into Wembley is a team that was missing five of the normal starters. So it wasn't like you know everyone is is having a meltdown about kind of you know how the result exactly went, but it was more like everyone is feeling that the, that Madrid over the last two games have simply not had the correct attitude and a lot of play, like a lot of Madrid fans will feel and be able to excuse some amount of bad results and bad luck if the players seem to be giving a shit but like in this game especially it felt like well I mean to be quite honest it felt like Kroos, Modric, a lot of the players that have been a- absolutely the best in the world simply weren't that I mean like Modric no, they, and Kroos were, were really one of the worst games I've seen but, from the pair of them uh, in Modric the last was three years Modric and Kroos were played off the pitch by 20-year-old, slight little Harry Winks. And I love me some Harry Winks. He is really exciting, but that, that's not a thing that should be happening. Um, but, it, but it did. I mean, there's no question that uh, Madrid's midfield was completely overrun. And Which, that did not happen in the Bernabeu. The midfield really was was much stronger yeah, than Spurs yeah, in, they, in the Bernabeu. But in Wembley, they got overrun. They did. And it's not clear exactly what's going on with them. And... I mean, to be frank, I think that it just is simply an attitude issue. And like, I, I just, I think that on, on some level, these players, I mean, because let's be clear, like when these guys are keyed in and playing the way that we've seen them play over the last few years, there is almost no tandem in world football that's better. And, and I, I would put them up against any like midfield tandem, those two. And like, they've simply dropped the ball. Like they dropped the ball against Spurs and they dropped the ball over the weekend against Girona, who also played this side off the pitch. I mean, it was simply embarrassing. And like the players after both games have said, basically like, look, we need to key ourselves in. We need to get hyped up. And like, this is the first time in the Zidane era that that has been an issue. And we'll see how Zidane approaches, you know, the next, the next few months or the next, really the next few weeks, because like any more, slippage in the play from this side and you know really in the results at all is going to be it's going to raise the din around him to a fever pitch which is stupid of course because like he hasn't he's only had if you think about it Zidane as coach has only actually had uh uh I think one or two 
transfer windows to really craft the team to, that he wants. And like, he also hasn't had a transfer window ever where he's actually had to go in and make big adjustments because the team isn't playing well. And so we'll see how he approaches the January window. That's something I'm really interested in. And I think it'll be a lot you know, determinative of his future as a manager with Madrid, what, how he approaches the window in January and, and how he turns this around. This is the first crisis under Zidane in a real, in any you know conceivable way. I mean, like the first one was, really before his time or and really that when Madrid were bowed out of the cup uh the the Copa last year uh I mean I don't know you know I don't know what the future holds for Zidane I think the January window is going to be really indicative of that I think there are places on this roster that Madrid can can you know improve I also think that he has to be willing to play some of the reinforcements that were brought in over the summer and he just basically has given up on or not given up but like not really given a chance to players that really really were good and were brought in because they were so good so there are two in particular Evan that I wanted to mention so you'll notice in that match uh, that when Madrid went down um, I think it was down two. Uh, Zidane, you know, and there were two goals that Spurs rightly deserved, but that a, I think a more lucky and on form Madrid maybe doesn't let those in, but like, regardless, the team deserved it and Madrid needed to react. And so he went to a three at the back setup that involved Mm -hmm. Sergio Ramos, um, Nacho and Casemiro playing in the back line. And that Spurs ripped that shit apart and it was an embarrassment. But the truth is that if instead of what he did in, in instead of the team selection where he brought on the uh eighteen year old Ashraf Hakimi, uh Zidane had chosen to go with uh Jesus Vallejo, who is a proven uh, starter at center back in the German league next to Sergio Ramos and then started Nacho who played at center back in this match at right back, which is another one of the positions he's able to play. Then he could have transitioned to a three at the back with Ramos, Vallejo and Nacho and then had Casemiro in front of those three. And that actually is a very different look as and, a three in the back system that actually could have they, been useful in this match. And, instead, and they needed, yeah. they needed that, that defensive midfielder to shield them in the worst kind of way, right? Because what Spurs was able to do was just run through that back line time and time again. If they had that extra man shielding the back line in Casemiro, I think that those counterattacks that ended up, you know, eventually that created just chance after chance and eventually right. created a third goal. Like those are much more difficult to get for Spurs if they're not able to just run through the channels between the three right. center backs over and over. Right, exactly. And I, I Obviously, there are issues with the finishing, but again, I actually feel more that that is something that will come. Like Cristiano Ronaldo had a number of shots on goal that vintage and and even like performing at ninety percent of Cristiano Ronaldo that that those shots go in and like it doesn't. I mean, look, obviously, like Yuris is a great keeper, but it wasn't like Cristiano wasn't getting the opportunities that he needed. Like he was there, well, he had it. Like he. He's a good player that will bury some of that shit norm, like normally, and he's just well, he's not sna- in form right now. Yeah, no, a couple of those shots that he had, he just snapped right at Lloris. And, you know, Lloris, you know, to his, you know, sure, maybe if, if, if Ronaldo gets them, you know, on target for the corner instead of at Lloris, maybe Lloris gets, still gets a palm to it, but he definitely is going to catch it when he hit it at his chest. Yeah, exactly, um, and that's the point, right? And, <laughs> and like, that's what he kept doing. Right, exactly, and he just kept smashing that ball right at Lloris. And, and like, ironically, in the Hirona game, when Madrid was at 1-1, Ronaldo had a wide-open header in front of the keeper and just knocked it to him. And it's just, I don't really know what exactly is going on, but that's something that I'm actually a little bit less worried about. And, like, it's also going to be less worrisome when 
Gareth Bale is back, and which is probably going to be this weekend, and when Danny Carvajal is back, which will be soon as well. So, like, it, those are both key cogs in Madrid's attack that just haven't been in the mix all season. Or, well, no, for the last couple of matches. And, I mean, Bale, the, the least you could have said if Bale didn't in this game, there are two things that, would have been, that could have been different for this side. And one of them is that he is not a low energy and low intensity player. So he's running the whole time. The second one is that he's a natural defender as well as an attacker. So he actually, Madrid would might likely have been less overrun in midfield with Gareth Bale. So like, it's like, there are a lot of problems with this side. I think that Zidane's tactics and side selection have a little bit to do with it, but I think really more than anything, it's player motivation. And I'm sorry well, to like, dominate this, but like, I think that the question about Madrid's form is something that is a crucial question in European football right now, just kind of generally, because if this is what Real Madrid is, then there really is an opening for other well, teams to huge, win. It's a huge opening. And I think that there's a lot of teams that are out there that want to take advantage. So you've got Tottenham, who obviously is, you know, they've proven that they can beat Madrid and, you know, at least in this current form. And they're someone who, you know, a team that would be an upstart and it would be a huge story if they were to make a run. Um, but you've got PSG, whose entire season revolves around getting to a uh, uh, Champions League final, right? And so having Madrid be down right. would be a massive opening to try to validate the PSG project. Um, you know, you have Barcelona and Bayern who have had their struggles, uh, or Barcelona not so much, but Bayern who have had their struggles. And and but so Barcelona, yeah, so who it's, everyone in the media actually, for what it's worth, think that a struggle is struggle is coming for this side because they no, they I are, agree, they, they are so vastly overperforming. No, 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 ton of ton of luck, ton of luck. Um, you know, for me, I think that your player motivation really hits it. Like when I was watching that match, it looked like young energy against old complacency. Um, yeah. it looked like a side that had, had, you know, the Tottenham side looked like they didn't have a care in the world. Um, they were playing free flowing football. They were trying really, I mean, on the first goal, Harry Winks, they, like that is a really adventurous pass that diagonal ball to Trippier who's, you know, making a run past the line. Like, that's a really adventurous yeah, pass for a right. 20-year-old midfielder to make um, who's not even really an attacking midfielder. Um, you know, but they were, they were trying stuff, and it was coming off, and they were playing w with a lot of joy. Um, and it, w it just seemed like a slog for yeah, Madrid. it seemed like none of the players wanted to be there at all. Except for Ronaldo. Like, Ronaldo, yeah. to his credit, like, he's an asshole, and I can't stand a lot of the he, stuff he said after the match. But, boy, was he trying hard. He wears his heart on his sleeve, and he speaks with his heart before for his head a lot of the time and like when you get these like when you get him after the match he's gonna say crazy shit and I think that Real Madrid should be a little better about preventing him from doing post-match interviews immediately after the game and just let him like cool off like he that's just like yeah. his his non-match interviews are really calm and normal but like when he has to go to the he showers and goes out to the media and he's just like everyone fucking sucks except me the other team sucks if they were any good blah blah, blah. and like you're just like dude this is so useless and not helpful but like if you if you were to ask him like now like what, what were your thoughts on that he was like yeah man like I think we need to work better. Like the, the we're not like yeah. stuff isn't coming off like that's what he sounds like in real like interviews it just it's annoying because like Everyone always talks about like his stupid shit, and yeah, I mean, well, the he, dude's a passionate, he, passionate guy. <laughs> well, he was the he was the only Madrid player on the pitch that I thought wasn't snake bitten the other day. Like he yeah. looked, he looked quality. He looked scary. His shots weren't, you know, great, but he was creating his yeah, own shot. Exactly. Like um, the dude and, is, is still Ronaldo, and it's just it's just the shot, and it's gonna come like that. Like if he keeps playing like that, he's gonna score a bunch of goals this season. It's not that worrisome to me.
you know, on the Spurs side, I just I think it's important to point out a couple things, which is that you know this was with a not 100% Harry Kane. This was with a with without our probably best center back in Alderweireld who pulled up with a hamstring injury really early in the match. This was without our first choice midfield at all. Um, first choice midfields Musa Dembele and, and Victor Wanyama they were out. So like that's what's maybe even more exciting about Spurs being able to pull this off is that they did this without really their, this wasn't even close to their first choice 11 that played, you know, 70 out of the 90 minutes of this game. Um, and, and you know, that's, that is the kind of squad depth that you need to have to be able to make a deep champions league run. And I think that's where Spurs focus has to be now. I think that, you know, I, I hate to say it even, you know, just a third of the way in this season, but for Spurs, probably the eight points that they're back from City is going to be too much. Um, you know, they're even even when they still have two two matches to play against City, I, I just don't see them clawing their uh, their way back points wise. City, um, they're just too good. City's not going to drop points that many times. But in a knockout tournament, I like Spurs in any tie that you give them to have a puncher's chance to win. Um, and so if I'm Pochettino, that's my focus the rest of the season. Get as far in the Champions League as you possibly can and just just let uh, let's take a run at this thing. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, what Madrid has shown over the last two Champions League runs is that depth is absolutely crucial. And, you know, there's a little bit of luck that's required in that. But depth is more than anything. The fact that Madrid and it's still like Zidane has, despite everything, <laughs> stuck to his rotation policy and he's getting creamed for it. But like people are in Madrid fandom are crazy, really crazy overreactors. But like Zidane, you know, his rotation policy is what really saved this team over the last two seasons where they could like finally at the business end. Right. Like this team is not particularly built for playing in October and November. I mean, like it is right. But like it's not really built for getting to its full potential. Now, it's a team that is designed right to ramp up in, you know, February start hitting mid like towards peak at the end of March. And then April, May, and June are the periods when this team is entire season is built for that period. And like the way they're playing right now, they could be eliminated from contention before then. So they need to pull their shit together a little bit, but like, so, so it maybe... makes sense to like, and that's how Pep's Barca used to condition themselves as well. Like they actually used to drop a lot of points at the beginning of the season and then roll into the end of the season really, really intensely. Yeah. So, so cards on the table, Gabe. Let's do a little, I, I, little off the cuff prediction game. So, okay. UCL prediction. Madrid, how far do they go? Spurs, how far do they go? Well, I mean, I so I saw. I think Dermot uh, Corrigan talked about this. He said after this match, it doesn't mean this match doesn't make Spurs more likely than Madrid to win the title, uh, but it does make Madrid less likely to win the title. I uh, yeah. I think that they could both be in. I think Spurs at least like I think a a good season for Spurs is them making the quarters, um, and I think a, a optimistic projection could be semis. And then at semis, who the hell knows? But you know, I think that Madrid will feel like they failed if they don't get to the semifinals. So yeah, I, so I don't know. Like maybe, but um, my feeling is Madrid will still will turn it around and make it to the semis because it's not like these teams the, that Madrid isn't qualifying. Yeah, so I, I feel about the same way. In fact, I actually think the Madrid's. I still like them to make the finals. Um, I still I believe in the talent in that team. 
Um, I think that you're right where this is kind of, it's kind of a weird attitude or energy thing. And like Zidane, Zidane, I think I have confidence that he's a good coach and he's going to be able to shake these guys up and he's going to be able to get them refocused. Um, and they're going to, they're going to go on some ridiculous string of matches and just clobber people and get their confidence back. And so I actually still like them to make the finals, you know, not having seen the draw yet. That's, that's still my thought. Um, for, for Spurs, I, um, I like them to win their round of 16 match. So to make the quarters, um, and then, you know, I give them a puncher's chance of making the semis, you know, to make the, to make the, so it goes round of 16. Um, and that's, and then it goes directly to semis. I don't think so. No, 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 no. Round of, round of 16, then, then, uh, quarter. Quarter. So I like them to make, I like them to have a better than even chance, like a really solid chance. Yeah, I agree. Quarter and then a puncher's chance to make the semis. Of course it depends on the draw because there are a lot of top heavy groups. So like, literally Barca and Juve are in one group like that sucks so that well, means no, what's that what's stupid is Spurs I mean it's looking Chelsea, like Bayern's Roma, gonna be right. like Bayern's gonna be second in their group probably right. it's looking like Juve's you know probably gonna be the second in their group and so Spurs is and Spurs are you know to be clear likely to win they they'll win this group just by beating Apoel um or or Dortmund but you know Apoel's the obviously right. the easier mark um, they could, you know, go into the first pot after winning this and then end up Draw drawing Bayern, Bayern Munich no, and it'd that. be freaking stupid. So, like, they could still, you know, end up crashing out at the round of 16. But I like them. I do like them to, you know, luck aside, I like them to make the uh, to make the quarters. And, and yeah, we'll see where we go from there. But it's yeah. exciting stuff. I think I don't think that's a bad prediction at all. My feeling is um, Spurs are definitely in with a shout to make to make the semis. I think they're in with better than average, better than 50 percent to make the quarter. And that's that's better. Like that's really good, right? From last year, like this team that crashed out of Europe in the way that. Let's be clear. So uh, there are two teams right now that have just unbelievably bad results. Uh, uh, Borussia, unbelievably they're done. They're bad. Out. They're, they're out. out. They're, they're out. They're done. I mean, they're not. Right. I don't think they're mathematically eliminated but yet. I'm not eliminated sure. Because but they're all, basically done. Right, because all they need to do to be eliminated is to have Real Madrid beat Apoel oh. in Madrid. In so fact, like, I'm not even. I think Madrid getting a point might basically do it. Yeah. Uh, it, it like, so whatever. They're they're done. eliminated essentially, uh, and it's really they have to fight right now, <laughs> which is pretty funny. They have to fight to make the Europa League because Apoel actually and BVB are tied in points. Uh, yes, which is amazing. hilarious. And the other one is uh, Atletico has drawn Karabag both times, right? And they're sitting third right now. They're sitting third. So Atletico, no, I mean Atletico is very unlikely to make the next round. Also, so here's what the truth is, my dude. The it's very possible that the Europa League quarterfinals are fuck or semifinals are fucking lit because if you think about it, here are the four teams that could be in the Europa League semifinals. Ready? Arsenal, AC Milan, Atletico, BVB. That's a crazy quarter of semifinals yeah. in the Europa League. God damn. Yeah, no, I mean, you talk about it, right? You've got, you know, probably the, 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 the top of the second tier of the Spanish League, the top of the second tier of the German League. You've got the best other team in Italy, and you've got a really scrappy small market team in Arsenal. Um, and it could be really <laughs> exciting. <laughs> uh they suck. Um, yeah, so that's, <laughs> they fucking drew freaking who they draw? Uh, Red Star. Red Star uh, Belgrade, Red baby. Star Belgrade the the party of the communist youth uh, uh, army yeah. in, yep. uh, in in Serbia. That's fucking yep. awesome. Uh, yep. All right. So that's our um, Champions League rundown. I mean, I think right now 
you have to look at favorites and, and think that PSG, Manchester City are both um, in that PSG's, in that conversation. I think yes, PSG does look really nasty. Like when they get up to play, um, they play some really really slashing attacking football. It's kind of scary. Yeah, and we'll have to see like how they how they do when they're presented with the the Yoop, um Bayern in a couple weeks. Like that's a, yep. that's a that's a time I'm looking forward to a lot because they beat they were the last match of the Ancelotti Bayern, so it's 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 very possible they're not going to end up with. You know, tons of, um, you know, they, they might actually be exposed against a much better team, right? But who knows? I mean, like, and if they co- like convincingly beat that Bayern, then, yeah, I think they, they would be elevated to the absolute top of the, the favorites. I think, I mean, look, Manchester City has to be in this conversation. Pep, you know, retooled and created this juggernaut. Uh, and, um, you know, I think that right now well, Bar- Barcelona has to be in the conversation, even though I, I, I would choose both of the other two against Barcelona were it to come to that. Well, and just one more comment on this before we, you know, move on. I think that, you know, another little subtext just to follow here is kind of the revival of English teams in the Champions League. It has been a yeah. long time since English teams were relevant in the Champion League, Champions League. And right now you have to say that Spurs, United, and, and uh, City, I think, are all potential semifinal threats. And so yeah. um, that's pretty cool for, you know, an English, in, English football yeah, team. Yeah, it a has while. been a long time. And it's been at the detriment, ironically, of Spanish teams who um, do not look as good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> With um, Atletico Barca, or Barca is the only one that looks even okay right now. Real Madrid, and uh, you know, is obviously still a real good team. But like Atleti, man, man, they they oof, oof, it's not they good. have fallen. I think it's possible Simeone will be uh, fired by January if they keep keep playing like this, which is shocking. Hey, because... the U.S. national team's looking for a coach. Yeah, I mean, yes, yes, they are. I would sign up for that fucking right now. Right now. Yeah, yeah, done. Do it. Yeah. I mean, literally anyone other than like the kind of names that we've. Uh, Big Sam, baby. Big Sam said so he, he'd, he'd think about it. He said he'd think about it. And you know what? I would rather have him than some of the names that are on that fucking list. I'm not kidding. I'm not oh, like, Jesus. can you imagine if like Bob Bradley, I'd way have Big Sam. I don't give a shit. God, we need to embargo talking about the U.S. men's national team. Yeah, let's do that. Um, All right. Let's given that we're talking about it already. It's MLS playoff season. And uh, we have a lot to talk about with respect to one specific team, but let's quickly give an overview. The first round of the MLS playoffs, fucking blue. Yeah, awful. There was only basically one good game. And it was a 0-0 tie. It was also, yeah, it was a 0-0 tie that went to penalties. Uh, Columbus, Atlanta. We're going to talk about that in a second. So let's just quickly go through the other ones. I mean, like. So Vancouver beat the hell out of San Jose. Houston barely beat Sporting in a really boring match. Super and, boring. I and tried to New watch York, that one. I turned it off. It fucking sucked. And the, and the New York energy drink Red Bulls beat the living hell of the Chicago Fire. Right. There you go. That's your other three matches. Let's right. talk Atlanta-Columbus. Yeah. All right. So Atlanta-Columbus. Um, and so and we've we've watched the first slate. Uh, the So the the... It annoys. I just gotta say really quickly. It annoys me that now we're going to two-legged playoffs after having the emotion of a single-leegged playoff. They, um, they, it goddamn needs to be single elimination. Yeah, it, the whole it does. It, it makes more sense. It just does in the American context because, like, yep. I get it in the Champions League, and there's a lot of emotion in two-legged ties in the Champions League. Fair enough, but like in in the American context. We we as a country don't do well with this two-legged shit. Like I. <laughs> I did not. I was not psyched. Anyway, so let's let's talk Atlanta Columbus. It was an incredible game, Evan. The so the, it was zero zero, but it was the best zero zero game I think I've ever seen in my life. 
Yep, pretty sure that's what I texted you too while we were watching yeah, it. I've never, well, I've never been more. Oh, <laughs> I just dropped my microphone. Um, I've never, never watched a more exciting zero-zero uh, draw ever. Yeah, it was incredible, and I'm all. I mean, like, look, I'm also drinking some wine right now, so I could knock my microphone over. So don't feel bad. Um, <laughs> yeah. So let's be let's be clear. They each it, it was zero zero despite each team hitting the post twice. Like it was. Yeah. It was a crazy good game, and and what really brought it was first of all, look, it, it sucks that Atlanta had to go out for Columbus to progress because both of us I think were rooting for Columbus. Um, mm -hmm. and, and mainly it was because first of all, I, I, Columbus is my first or second team. I haven't decided yet between Columbus and Atlanta, which fucking annoying as hell because Eleanor, my fiance is, uh, from Columbus, but my, my basic feeling was like Atlanta is an incredible team and it absolutely has to be the future of MLS. Like it is that the energy in that stadium tonight was champions league knockout round energy. Like that was it was awesome. There were 70,000 people there. There were They were absolutely all screaming for that team. And Atlanta looked really good. They were playing really well on offense. They were leaving a lot of space at the back, which Columbus was exploiting also. And it was just back and forth and back and forth. And just a brilliantly exciting match from both teams. And the the crowd was, I mean, <laughs> it was beyond anything I've, I've ever seen so in MLS. So I've always thought that for MLS to be successful with the American market, like it needs to play a certain style of soccer. Like there's a certain style of soccer that might win a lot of matches and it, like Jose Mourinho's style of soccer. Like that is never going to play in American market. American need, needs soccer that like looks like a freaking basketball yeah. match. Basketball it's game, trying right? to explain fucking complicated defensive tactical shifts to like American casual soccer fans is not yeah. the way for or the like, game to grow. Look, they American soccer fans, most of them would be perfectly happy if there just was no midfield. Um, and trying <laughs> to explain to them like how a midfield battle works and how they work it through the wings and how you have to get through their defensive shield. Like, no, they and you know how the double pivot works together. No, no, they do not care. Do not care. They want to see attacking football. And right. that was the best that you got was between Atlanta and Columbus, who were both throwing everything forward. They were both just bypassing the midfield and just going for it. Um, it was fast paced. There were lots and lots of chances. There were no goals, but it didn't matter. I think that you could sell a lot of American like this might be the perfect um, the perfect match to like tape and show to Americans how a 0-0 draw can still be interesting, even though no goals were scored, because this was crazy exciting. Yeah, it really it really was. And just you saying that, Evan, reminded me that there was an article like that we talked about last week that was like how to make soccer better for Americans. And like none of that is true, like what the article said. Right. But this this shit is true. What we're saying right now, like do you want to make soccer better for Americans is make sure that you're investing in teams and coaches whose philosophy is what we've seen from the last two games of watching Columbus play two really awesome, fun attacking sides. Right. So, and, it, like, and you know, and you know, I, I, I want to point out that's not even a crazy thing to say in the context of European soccer, right? There's different clubs that have different identities and it's thought that you need to hire a coach that matches the identity for a certain club. Right. So like Tottenham is an example where they, you know, have always thought of themselves as someone as a team that plays like really fluid attacking football. Barcelona is a, a side that thinks of 
themselves of playing a certain way and they wouldn't hire coaches that didn't play the beautiful game. So it's not like crazy even the context of world soccer that there's a certain kind of soccer that should match the fan base. Um, and I think MLS needs to consider that when they're like deciding, making these kind of meta decisions of what kind of teams they want to promote. I agree. And one of the things that we see is that like that's what you're saying is all why like each league, right, has different, you know, reputations because historically like the English league has been very physical and very direct, mm -hmm. right? Over the top. The Spanish yep. league has been very like technical and very midfield heavy. Uh, in but Italy, also very attacking. You, in, in Italy, in Italy, you bribe the refs and right. get your results. <laughs> you bribe the referees to call uh, offsides when the other team scores a goal uh, without any players even near the offside line. And that's how it goes, you know? And, and no, but in, in all seriousness, like Italy is historically, even though it's not actually been true this season, Italy has been, or even recently particularly, Italy has been the defense, the defensive league. And so trying to yep. import Italian-style defensive tactics to MLS, which, let's be clear, we have seen in MLS. And that yep. sucks. And I hate it every time I see it because I know that some casual, like, you know, fo American football NFL bro from Alabama is turning on ESPN and he sees, like, oh, man. Uh, so soccer people zone. and like he sees fucking sporting Kansas City in like fucking eleven men behind the ball cut Nacho like yeah fuck and that. whoever it is just just crashing into the bus over and over again just crashing into the bus and it's really really boring and it wouldn't even be interesting in a European context but especially people who are just getting into into soccer that is not how you advertise no, the product it is not uh so let's let's um. Let's uh, talk a little bit about, so the next round uh, we saw Columbus, All right, and let's be clear. So in that game, actually, I, I want to just actually <laughs> pivot back to that for a second. We saw an incredible two goalkeeping performances from two uh, fantastic young keepers, including uh, U.S. men's national team, someone who should have been in goal for U.S. men's national team uh, playing keeper for Columbus, um, Bill Steffen, right? Yep, yep. I mean, I, we were talking about during the match, if he was in goal during the Trinidad and Tobago match, given what we saw um, in uh, in that match, like there's no question that the U.S. is qualified for the World Cup. He does not let either of those Trinidad goals in. Um, the man is quick. Um, he is focused Zach on the game. Steffen, His positioning was good. Go yeah, Zach Steffen. Like, I mean, he was good. He, there's no question in my mind that they that they win with him. He he looked great. Yeah, and and. He was he was really good. I mean, obviously he got helped by the post, but like he also was really good in the penalty shootout. Like he he had a, a huge amount of goal presence. He knew when to come out, uh, and he knows when to distribute. And like he was playing in so the next match, and that's why I wanted to bring him up. In the next match, he was playing against David Villa's New York City, and I mean he played a great match against New York City as well, and against a team where it's very hard to keep them off the board. Uh, especially considering they have like arguably the best player since Thierry Henry to play in MLS. And David Villa obviously was absolutely a menace that whole match, but Columbus matched him and, and Stefan really matched him also. And ultimately, yeah, he scored, but like not like, no, it, was, it, was, it was a consolation. goal. Right. It was point. a consolation I mean... goal at three, one uh, at three, zero and it became three, one. And then Columbus scored again to make it four, one and really seal up the tie. I mean, like... yeah, it was massive. It was massive. And they did it in stoppage time. It was actually really dramatic. Um, and that was, that match was in Columbus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, the atmosphere was really cool after the goal. You have all the save the crew people going crazy. Um, it was a really, really, really fun thing to watch. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was really good. I, um, so, I. Uh... I will note that the so there let's just really quickly I want to note a couple of the save the crew things <laughs> uh because um so let's be clear there are two things I wanted to mention first of all there were a lot of reports that people were frisked very aggressively going into the stadium uh and that led to an atmosphere at the beginning of the match where the the they were panning around the sta- the stadium showing empty seats that actually wouldn't weren't eventually empty additionally the the crew by all accounts of everyone that I've seen on Twitter actually actually underestimated the attendance numbers at that match um where if you actually looked into that stadium and around, it's about a 20,000 person stadium and it was not entirely full, but it was very close to full. And they, they estimated the attendance at about 14,000 and a lot of uh, crew journalists who I respect said, yeah, I've seen the attendance numbers at higher numbers when this, the stadium has been much less full. So I just, I'm going to note those two things because I, I'm not like, look, I'm a little bit of a conspiracy theorist when it comes to this, this situation, because I actually think that if I were in the position of the guy trying to move my franchise to a different place, having a good turnout for a playoff game is a negative and having like a really raucous and good atmosphere is a negative and having your team, you know, win really is a negative at this point. And I, I, I think that anyone who is affiliated with pre-court and PSV and the MLS and Austin AstroTurf group, like they have to be rooting against the crew right now and fuck them because the crew is on this amazing Cinderella run and it's likely they're going to go to the uh, semifinals. So, I mean, it's 12 unbeaten now for the crew. It's, uh, you know, it's they're they're pretty much through to the semis. I mean, it had to be a complete catastrophe in Yankee Stadium for um, for them not to go through. And I, look, I don't put it past pre-court at all to intentionally understate the, uh, the crowd size. Like I just don't, that it's the easiest thing in the world to manipulate. Um, and, and yeah, that it, I just, I just don't doubt at all that they might've done that. I know that I saw a team on the pitch that was playing really well. And I saw a crowd that seemed really into it. Yeah. Um, that, that's all I know. I, yeah. I did not see a city we that there. was a get that were giving, that was giving up on a team. No, nope, not um, at all. Not at all. And I also know big old shout out to our friend Kier, who was at the match and was texting me from it, said he also well, got I didn't know that. down um, pretty aggressively. So shout out to Kier. He said the lines were very long, but he hey, also hey, Gabe, should we oh, go ahead. Not one to uh, goose the you know, he's not he's not really a conspiracy theory. He's um, was telling me that he doesn't really think that there was an intentional effort to suppress people getting into the stadium. But I think even he who's probably listening to this <laughs> would agree that underestimating the attendance numbers is a very easy thing to lie about yeah. uh, and is the kind of thing that you can use later to justify this kind of stuff. So, but I would also, hey, yeah, should... sorry, go ahead, Evan. What were you saying? No, I, I'm just really eager to talk about the Cascadia Derby. Oh yeah, dude. Absolutely. Because, because I, because the Cascadia Derby, which I'm assured is very important in American soccer that Cascadia plays um, so Seattle and Vancouver are both in Cascadia. Yeah. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't I didn't sure know what Cascadia aware. was before, uh, last week. Well, so I'm letting you know that Seattle and Vancouver are both in it. Um, and they played a Derby and it was boring zero zero. And I don't think we need to say anything more about it. Yeah. It sucked. I, I, um, here's what I will say about it. There was, 
uh, it was played in Vancouver, the first leg. Uh, a group of fans that were Seattle fans um, who uh, I'm sort of connected to in that I, I know the guy, one of the, one of the people who you know, was talking with them about this, brought a sign that said, uh, anti-racism, anti-fascism, always Seattle. And they hung it, tried to hang it, and they, they got kicked out of the stadium. And that is despite the fact that MLS has allowed many, many other uh, anti-racism, especially big signs that say like Portland against racism. Like there's a lot of anti-racism messages. There's the, the um, yeah, there, there's a whole campaign in MLS for it. That's the only thing I wanted to mention is like it. There, so it was reported on Sounder at Heart, our SB Nation uh, Sounders blog and um yeah, I mean, like that sucked, and I don't think they should have been kicked out for that shit. But I'm for, just gonna—I want to shout out to yeah. those guys. But like that—that yeah, that sucks. For reasons that have to do with my job, I have no comment. Yeah, no, no, I'm not asking you to comment, my dude. I'm just saying that, but, like, it sucks. That but the game—the game, the game was out. garbage. The game was fucking terrible, though. That, <laughs> the game that's was definitely terrible. True. I hope to God that the re- return leg is better because I—you know—the what that's when, supposed look, to be. The a- atmosphere in Seattle is one of the best in the country, so like it's gonna be—it's gonna be better even there. But like I—I I, you know, I don't know. The yeah, game- but they both—I mean, so they're almost the opposite of Atlanta and Columbus. They both set up pretty defensively. They were both trying not to concede. It was—it was not the best demonstration of. Uh, What's of, annoying of what- though is because the two-leg tie actually encourages the first-leg home side to just play for a zero-zero draw, because. If they can then nick a goal away, it's a totally like they're really in control of the tie. And like that's annoying because and in America, like any time when you're at home and you're playing for like a zero zero or like a one zero match, you're going to play a boring game. <laughs> you're just going to play yeah, a boring yeah. game. Yeah, And I, I actually didn't see any of Portland Houston at all. So uh, I heard it was equally boring. Um, so that is kind of our MLS uh, uh, overview. Stay tuned for our Nestor interview. We'll be back next week. We're going to do a more in-depth bad take section next week because we're not doing one this week. Got some uh, good stuff. There's a lot of good stuff out there. We'll probably do a whole reading. It's going to be great. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll talk to you guys soon. Evan, good talking to you and uh, stay tuned for the Ernesto interview. Yep, it's great. Great stuff. Everyone just stick around. And welcome. This is your last Let's Fix Football interview segment. Um, if you're on the Managing Madrid podcast, you just heard a little bit of a cold open um, when we're joking about like how PSG is going to collapse in on itself, which is all good. Um, and maybe you heard Evan's dogs barking. Um, they're it's very good dogs. Having a catastrophe. Dogs. Um, but if you're on Last Week Football, this is just kind of random. So hi, guys. Welcome. Um, uh, this is Gabe Lezra, your host. I'm joined by Evan Matiers, always. Uh, and happy and excited to welcome back our good friend Ernesto Alvarado. Ernesto, you are joining the uh, very coveted, very prestigious tier of two-time Let's Fix Football guests. <laughs> That's good to hear. Always a pleasure. It's very prestigious. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's the only it's you Gra- right now. <laughs> ground Groundbreaking. Yeah, absolutely. We have... Guys, we have a shitload to talk about, so we should get into it, because we brought Ernesto here to talk about three... Uh, interlocking and, and related, but also very different and very interesting 
things that are going on in world sport right now. And I think I'll just quickly give a preview. We're going to talk a little bit about PSG. We're going to talk a little bit about Catalonia. And we're going to talk a little bit about La Liga uh, and the corruption that's going on in La Liga. So, but let's start with let's start with PSG because Ernesto, you are um, in Paris, as as uh, listeners probably know, you are a FCPA attorney with Hughes Hubbard and Reed working out of Paris, um, and you're a PSG fans, well, or at least a PSG follower. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the new or relatively new allegations that have cropped up against the chairman of PSG, Al Khalifi, uh, from the Swiss Swiss authorities. Am I right about that? Yep, that's correct. So uh, just a bit of background uh, for people that may not, well, I'm sure PSG right now is pretty world famous, but just a bit of context. PSG is one of the, it's right now one of the richest teams in the world. It's one of the biggest teams in the world. Um, as most listeners are probably uh, well aware of by now, they were the team that signed Neymar to the world record 222 million euro uh, contract. And so PSG, what's interesting about them is that they were sort of, they were created in the 1970s through a merger of two teams. They were meddling, they had a few, they, they, were, they were a middling team, they had a few good years, but they were really sort of up and down and they never sort, they never became a prominent, a prominent French team like Lyon or Marseille, for example. They were a, and so, a selling team, really, right? I mean, like what I remember, most that I remember from PSG from back in the day was that they were the team that sold Barcelona Ronaldinho. That's basically all I knew about PSG. That's about right. I mean, they they came into they became more well known on a global stage because Ronaldinho they, they were the team that brought Ronaldinho over to Europe and Ronaldinho developed into the player that he eventually became uh starting off at at, at PSG. And so what ends up happening is that uh PSG up until about 2010 Remained a mid-table team, wasn't really in comp- in competition to win the league on, but they had a very very uh, popular fan, and that was uh, former president uh, Nicolas Sarkozy. And so Nicolas Sarkozy was a huge PSG fan, <laughs> and he also had very close connections and political ties to ca- the Qatar the, the Qatari family, the Qatari royal family. And so um, what we'll start off with is oh, interesting. Is I actually a- didn't know that that aspect yeah. of this. Yeah. And so what's interesting about about PSG is that in 2000 and basically the purchase of PSG by um, what is now known as the Onyx Qatar Sports Investment Group, which is a sovereign wealth fund owned by the Qatari government. This all sort of started in 2010, um, in November 2010, in something called the Sarkozy meeting. And so the Sarkozy, as I mentioned, he's a super fan of of PSG. He went to games regularly. He had an executive suite there. Very good relationship with the Qatari officials. And he was always looking to, to, to develop these economic and even sometimes military transactions and trades and deals in order to enhance the, the French, the, the, to improve the French um, economy during the, this was during the crisis period. And so in these November meetings, he invited over um, the Qatari Emir Tamim bin Hamad Al Thani, to discuss various trade deals and other matters of business. Uh, he also invited uh, Mr. Michel Platini, who was then the UEFA president. And so he wanted Mr. Mr. Um, president Sarkozy at the time, he wanted to discuss a few things. Uh, first, he wanted to discuss why Qatar would be an amazing place to host the World Cup, <laughs> a summer World <laughs> Cup. 
is the first order of business. So really good easy idea. pitch. Really easy pitch. Definitely exactly. required no bribing at all for that to happen. What's hilarious about that is that uh, Michel Platini came in and he's openly admitted to this now that he wanted the United States. He, he wanted to vote with the United States and Platini's vote sort of carried the weight of four votes because the, there were other four year, other European countries that were going to vote along the lines of whatever he voted. Classic the FIFA. Of- <laughs> just like, no, just for what it's worth, this is absolutely how FIFA works, which is why if devoted fans who listen to our entire uh, episode on the FIFA movie would remember there's a scene where the dude talks to like one African guy and then wins all of the votes from Africa. So like that's it's the same idea. Exactly. And so with with Mr. Platini, uh, eventually at the end of this meeting, he decides that Qatar is the place to go. Uh, he'll, he has not admitted that it was because of political pressure, but actually our good friend Seb Blatter was the person that has come out and, and, and publicly said that Platini had admitted to him that the reason why he changed his vote to support Qatar was based on the political pressure he felt from Sarkozy and the Qatari Amir family. Uh, and so that was the first order of business, was, was getting Qatar the vote. The second was uh, trade deals, so your standard sort of, uh, you know, purchasing of military or, you know, whatever type of technology that, that, that governments would want to be involved in. Uh, obviously, Qatar is a very, very um, oil-rich country, so uh, there were deals along those lines. And so the total of those transactions that were sort of outlined in, this, in, this, uh, in these Sarkozy meetings totaled about at least $18.5 billion that went into the French economy through this Qatari, Qatari French connection, so to speak. Um, and that's then the a last lot of money. That's a lot. That's at least, that's minimum. So it, it's, it, I'm, I'm assuming it's going to be significantly more than that. So were there um, any other, you know, deals struck? And so the third, yeah, so the, the third deal is the one that really was the one that Sarkozy pushed and made it open to the to the participants at this at this at this lunch was that he wanted the Qataris to purchase Paris Saint-Germain. And so Paris Saint-Germain during this time, they had run a deficit for the past 11 years. So they hadn't sort of they hadn't turned a profit in their net in their activities in over 11 in over 10 years. And so Sarkozy, you know, being a super fan of PSG, really sort of kind of was he was really alluding to the fact that he wanted uh the qataris to to purchase purchase psg and turn them into a you know a champions league uh a champions league side and so three weeks after mr Blatini votes for qatar to win the world cup bid uh the qatari sports investment group which is the sovereign wealth fund i had previously uh, mentioned purchases psg and in addition to that the purchase of psg the Qatari Tourism Agency signs an agreement, a sponsorship deal for PSG, giving them 200 million euros per year that, to be a sponsor on their shirt. It's just comically, comically corrupt stuff. Like, I, I don't mean like, look, obviously, like on some level, you know, you can kind of understand the president of France uh, negotiating a bilateral trade agreement with 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 a sovereign nation. But like the idea that. The president of France would be involved at all in a you know a sovereign wealth fund's decision to purchase a c- club in, in in a football league, and then you know you you have to also like what you the the, the last bit about the idea that 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 the Qatar Foundation would um, come in and and 
you give them a sponsorship deal with a huge budget that you know it, and and to be you know, to be frank like it was not worth 200 million dollars a year right like because no. this is a P- PSG team that as you said hadn't ever turned a profit or hadn't turned a profit in the last 11 years Right. So, right. so, and you know, kind of the interesting thing for me is that, so this, you know, Qatar coming in and doing this and Sarkozy pushing this wasn't in a vacuum, right? This is a couple, you know, what, two, three years after Abu Dhabi had the exact same thing happen with Manchester City and instantly turned them into, you know, a nothing mid-table team that had just come back to the Premier League into, you know, several time Premier League champions. And like we call it, it is corrupt, like in a vague sense, but in a legal sense, none of this was corrupt at the time because there wasn't really financial fair play yet it's financial fair play and the way that that interacts with these ridiculously overpriced sponsorship deals um that really you know makes it illegal at least against the you know the laws of the sport anyway no you're you're absolutely right and and what's interesting about this is just the sheer involvement of for example you this isn't the first time that you would have the so-called green revolution within a club right where uh, a really wealthy owner comes in and splashes half a billion dollars on players and completely turns the team around. We saw that. I think Manchester City is a great example of that. The other great example is Chelsea. Right. Obviously, you had a period where their best player was Gianfranco Sola, great, great Italian player, but they weren't winning Champions Leagues, right? And so then you Just have really quickly in Spain for everyone listening. Um, we actually have some fascinating examples of when this exact situation doesn't work. So, for example, Malaga actually was purchased by uh, and someone from the Gulf Coast region. And actually, the guy decided that he didn't wasn't interested in having a football club anymore. And that actually led to Malaga needing to sell players like Isco at actually what was arguably a discount when they sold him to Real Madrid for 30 million euros. And, you know, that, that actually has led to a situation where Malaga had to go through a series of rebuilding years. And it doesn't this kind of stuff doesn't always work. You can also look at, at Valencia like. So it's not like what I mean. Basically, what I'm saying is it's not a guarantee that your club's going to be great. Uh, just mm. because someone with a lot of money comes in and buys it, look at Valencia and Peter Lim. I mean, look at look at um, AC Milan right now. I mean, it's really in, yeah. in dire straits over there. So I just want to I just want to like had an addendum that like this isn't some sort of magic bullet by definition. And in fact, I think uh, when UEFA passed these laws about financial fair play, it had in mind that this doesn't always work because the fact is that if this always worked then you would want people to come in and buy these clubs just like you would in NFL or whatever. Uh, because if basically what you're talking about is the financial health of your league. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I, I think there were kind of two justifications, right? One is that, uh, you know, fans feel like it's unfair, right? Fans of old time big clubs feel like it's unfair when a, you know, Russian oil oligarch or an Arab oil sheik buys a mid table team and turns them into a ridiculous contender by or dropping American a ton of money. Billionaire, right, or Liverpool. an American billionaire, right? Yeah, absolutely, right? So people feel like it's unfair, but I think that what you're saying is definitely true too, right? There, It creates a financial arms race, and the problem is it doesn't always work. You end up with some debt-laden teams that you know are taking on a ton of debt or bad investments in order to try to keep up, and it falls apart. So for every Paris Saint-Germain or you know Manchester City, you know, there's a Malaga or someone else, an AC Milan, who who does much much worse, or mid-table teams who are trying to keep up who do much much worse, and um, and the, you know that's I, I just think it's important to keep where financial fair play in my comes in in mind because like financial fair play was literally designed to stop this, like it was supposed to stop this, and what the allegation is here is that you know PSG is just blatantly ignoring it 
to, you know, to get around the rules, even right. though the rules were brought in in place in part to respond to them. Right. And, and you know, the and, and PSG has already been they've already violated the uh, FIFA Fair Play. I believe in 2014 was when they first were fined for violating the FIFA Fair Play. Uh, that's right. In 2014, they they had the Champions League squad number reduced from 25 players, which is what every team gets to 21 and then also uh, were levied a $60 million fine, $40 million of which were is deferred. So um, they, I'm, assu- I'm assuming they had some type of agreement where if they didn't break FIFA Fair Play again, then maybe that wouldn't be imposed. But again, you see, you see right now that it's, it's very difficult to argue that, that PSG has not violated the FIFA Fair Play when they went out and signed a player for $222 million and then a, a player on loan for $180 million, right? And so... I think the what what's going to happen is that one of two things is that either PSG is going to be have to find a way to turn a profit, which to, in there in, in 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 you know to be fair to PSG, those jerseys are flying off the shelves. They're selling out games that are that would normally have not been sold out. I've seen uh, you know the ticket prices here just boom. Yeah, but that's all, not going to be a hundred million euros. I mean, no, not at all. And I think I think that's sort of where it is. Is that you know if everything goes exactly how PSG would want it to go. I don't see how they would be able to climb out of the hole that they're in right now without fire selling players, right? And that's sort of, the, that's the plan, at least here in Paris, that's the idea is, is, is that, you know, essentially six, seven players that could be first team players on any other team in Europe are being told that, you know, come January, you know, you're more than, you're more than welcome to leave. And, or the team president, who's also a CEO at BN Sports, could just renegotiate the media rights for an extra 100 million euros and poof, you have a profit well, from nowhere. Evan, that's a good segue into what I actually wanted to bring Ernesto on here to talk about, because obviously this is a really good background. It's, it's, it's interesting, but actually why we brought you on, Ernesto, is to talk about this new development, which is that the Swiss authorities have uh, – th- my understanding is that they have filed charges – uh, against the presidency of PSG, who is also or very connected to or also running the same enterprise that, that sponsors PSG. Anyways, regardless, they filed charges in uh, an investigation that my understanding, again, is that it relates to some of the corruption investigation that they've already partially conducted. Yep. So Nasser Al-Khalafi, who was, who was the guy we mentioned earlier, he is currently the president of, of PSG. He's also the CEO of Bain Sports, which um, to touch briefly on the point we were talking about where the Qatari Sports Investment uh, Wealth, Sovereign Wealth Fund purchases PSG, coupled with the Qatari Tourism Agency giving the $200 million sponsorship, Bain, Bain TV, which is an affiliate of Al Jazeera, which is a Qatari, a Qatari news BN network. For, just for what it's worth, I think that at least I previously pronounced it BN on this show. Oh, um, yeah. But it, it may be Bayon. I don't know. I, I actually don't have any. And he says, go ahead. Sorry. So, no, no worries. So, BN, uh, basically, they purchased the rights to, to the League One for two, from 2012 to 2016 for 607 million euros. Um, and then that was increased in 2014 to 726 million euros uh, for the rights for all League One uh, games through 2020. And so, this is all has a connection to Mr. Uh, Kelaifi, who is also the CEO of Bain Sports, and he's the chairman of the Qatar Sports Investment Sovereign Wealth Fund. So he's heavily involved in, in pretty much all, you know, the, the Qatari revolution into, into League 1. Uh, 
And, and Ernesto, so, isn't it isn't it correct that a, a disproportionate sum, like a huge amount of that seven hundred and change million euros, would go to PSG under the way that the rights are set up? I believe so. I, I think I think it is it is it would sort of return back to PSG based on the. I, I'm not sure how the pie is cut up in league, um, but I would be surprised if it wasn't the case uh, that PSG would get the lion's share along with I think Marseille and maybe Lyon. But right. I, I'll double check that. So. Um, so, anyways, uh, the CEO, the, the CEO of PSG, Mr. Klaifi, he was recently accused uh, in Switzerland of criminally bribing a former FIFA secretary general named Jerome uh, Valk. Valk yeah, big fan yeah. here of Jerome Valk. Anyone who knows, um, who's followed the FIFA investigation, knows that I am a personally a huge fan of his. In that, I hate his guts, but he is the guy who very famously, Ernesto, and I'm, I'm sure you know this, but like he's the guy that very famously went to Brazil and told the Brazilian parliament that their law banning alcohol at games had to be uh, revoked before the World Cup could come there because, you know, well, we are FIFA, and like if, if they don't want to sell alcohol, then we must sell alcohol at our games. It does not matter their laws. That's a, that's a legitimate and verbatim quote, and I can link you to the video where he said that. Big fan and of your own Valkyrie. They ended up changing it, no? I think yeah, they did. Cool. They did. No, no, of course. They, I mean, like, that's the whole point. Like, he got their laws changed because, and, like, we know also that, right, that Brazilian football was famous for uh, having people actually killed in soccer. And that, there's a reason they passed those laws in the first place. Like, I'm against those laws because I like to have a drink when I go to the game. But, like, people were executing referees in the middle of the pitch type of thing. Yeah. So, like, maybe don't, you know, there's a reason they had those. <laughs> It's it's always incredible to me to think that a that a sports organization like FIFA is able to have the clout strong enough to to to, to change domestic law, but I guess that's neither here nor there. Um, Globalization, baby. Right, exactly. And so, um, so yeah. So basically, uh, the 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 charges against Mr. Akalefi is that he uh, bribed Mr. Vuk in connection with the award of TV rights for the 2026 and 2030 World Cups, uh, being sports. Uh, had already purchased uh, from FIFA the rights to broadcast those tournaments to countries in the Middle East and North Africa. But I believe that they wanted to sort of cover uh, Europe and I think the Americas. Um, so that was the bribe that, 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 that he's accused of, of, um, of providing Mr. Vok. Uh, following the request from the OAG to legal authorities in France, so here we're seeing the cooperation that I was mentioning in the last show that we see these, you know, mul right. these multinational investigations coming. The OAG, which is the Attorney General's office in, in, in Sweden, they requested as assistance from France in collecting evidence, and they actually did comply, which is surprising for France. Uh, being sports uh, offices were uh, don raided in Boulogne Billancourt in Paris, and um, that's from from that information. That's where they began really looking into. Mr. Al-Khalafi's role in this, and now, as you had mentioned, I believe it's still in the investigation period, but I'm pretty sure that the formal charges will be pressed soon. Uh, I think last week, or the week before that, Mr. Al-Khalafi met with the Swiss authorities, and in that meeting with the Swiss authorities, he said that he had nothing to hide, and that he considered himself very calm, and that he didn't see any issues Not with bad. any type of fraud, bribery, or mismanagement. Um, the Swiss authorities did mention something that was pretty interesting is that they noted that the complexity of the case uh, is one that would take years as opposed to months to to unravel, which 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. Ernesto, you've, you know, all you and I, I, I'm sure you've worked on investigations. I've worked on investigations at law firms. And that's, you know, I, I was reading the same thing that it could take years. And that's really not unusual for investigations like this to take many years to wrap up. The, the government agencies tend to work very methodically gathering information. And it's not unusual to bring a witness in for a discussion. So there's different ways of, that governments approach it, but it's not necessarily unusual to bring a witness in early on, see what he knows, and then talk to them again later after you've gathered more evidence. And so it could be possible that they didn't really show their hand at this meeting and that he'll be back in, 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 you know, 20, you know, 16, 20 months to talk again. And, you know, the lawyers will make a presentation, this whole process that they'll go through before they decide, you know, what kind of charges will happen. So it could really be a while before anything comes of it. Yeah. And I just want to mention also like, not to like be too bringing it to contemporary issues, but obviously like that has a bearing on what we're seeing in the United States politically right now. Like these investigations take forever, but you also saw at the beginning of some of these investigations in the United States politically, you know, with the, with the kind of stuff into Trump's administration, like that's exactly what happened, right? You saw these people interviewing, you know, potential witnesses, suspects, all of that stuff. And then nothing happened for many months, or at least many things happened, but in secret. And then just recently they, they began to move forward. But I also wanted to mention that, Ernesto, and correct me if I'm wrong, the fact that uh, the, the French authorities raided, conducted a dawn raid of the BN offices, at least in the United States, to get something like that approved by a judge would require them to present evidence to the judge that they believe that the people at BN might destroy documents. Yes, it's either if there's if there was uh, if there was a possibility of destroying documents or if there's uh, proof that documents connected to the investigation in Switzerland that the Swiss authorities would not otherwise have access to um, were on the premises where the the request is made, and so. In Paris, what's interesting is that, or in France, I suppose generally, uh, what's interesting is that the, these these raids, these you know, the, these these raids and the, these uh, type of um, requests are processed by a judge. But these judges are also normally present at these at these raids. No, oh, interesting. It's, and you know, usually it's, it's magistrates that go with the authorities that are looking to collect these documents, and they'll be there and to, to oversee how these documents are transferred. What documents are, are 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 allowed to be given access to, uh, to 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 the authorities based on the scope of the search warrant, essentially? And so, I think m- what my what my guess would be is that the Swiss and the French probably have a mutual legal assistance treaty in place, and through that MLAT, um, there's a, a level of cooperation that the authorities have agreed on. And so, as long as the Swiss can argue before a before a, a French magistrate that um, this act, this information is required for this criminal investigation, and without the support of the French government, um, these documents would otherwise not be uh, easily accessible or available to those authorities. That is, I think, what would be one of the cruxes to the to the French request. But again, this is sort of based on the mm-hmm. the concept of the mutual legal assistance treaty. Um, the, the, the intricacies of the French component of it may be a bit different, but that's normally how it would work when, uh, an authority is looking to obtain evidence in another country. And so so in this, yep, go ahead. No, no, no. I I was just going to say like, in terms of like next steps, like what we can expect, like obviously the timeline is pretty stretched out here, but it, it, it feels like this has some, at least enough bearing in 
real fact and like it's not like any of us would believe that this didn't like this <laughs> criminal activity or at least really complicated and possibly fraudulent activity didn't occur what like what can we expect in the next um i don't know in the next year or so in the next year what you'll have is you'll the, the swiss authorities will begin to formalize what charges they can bring forward against mr Alkalefi. what can they prove based on the documents that they've discovered what type of new issues could arise? Um, they will probably have uh, maybe one or even up to two or three additional interviews with Mr. Akalefi to discuss the information they're finding and sort of uh, assessing his cooperation throughout that process. Uh, they may go, the, the Swiss authorities may go back to Mr. Valke, Valke, is that Mr. Valke? I just always call them Valke, but I, I don't think, isn't he, That's- um, French or Belgian? I don't really know. If it's if he's yeah. French or Belgian, he's probably Valk, right? Valk, right. So we'll go with Valk. So Valk, uh, they'll probably go back to him to discuss what he may know, and he may actually decide that it's a good idea for him to cooperate and maybe provide some information that otherwise wouldn't be available to the Swiss authorities with respect to these deals. And I think you're 100% right that it's not outside the realm of, 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 uh, you know, of reality that this all went down exactly how he's mentioning it going down because if you look at what he's banned for he's banned uh for 10 years from 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 the fifa ethics committee for any soccer or football related activities because he was attempting to sell tv rights for the 2018 and 2022 tournaments for far below their actual value right so this guy has had these issues before and so it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility that this, these issues arose again with mr Kalefi, who again is the ceo of being sports, which in the past five years has essentially taken over the football market. Uh, you know, you can't watch a game without being on being for the most part, which is fascinating to me in and of itself. Freaking annoying. The Qataris were so aggressive in locking down these multi-year deals with the most lucrative leagues in, in the world. They did. Um, What's really interesting is that they, what they didn't do was lock down the American broadcast rights of any of the English leagues, which I, I've always wondered about because, like, I have to watch and fucking pay for be in to watch any Spanish or French or even Italian games. But no, the English league is always on NBC Sports or I mean, FN1. NBC Sports, NBC Sports paid an obscene amount of money. I mean, the it's, it's a it's like a two and a half billion dollar contract, something like that. They paid for the English rights. So, I just wonder like, whether there's I don't like, know if BN could hang with that or not. Well, I also wonder whether there's just like one of the things that BN has done. And again, like we're making allegations that are totally not like just speculative and not at all legal conclusions. But like, I just wonder whether like the American anti-fraud and anti-corruption stuff is actually a little bit stronger than in some of these other countries. And I, I mean, like there is not, it's not like a kind of, it's not a kind of random chance that it was the United States that actually ended up kind of going after these, these guys uh, and, and really, you know, knocking on the door here. And like, it, it speaks to me a little bit like that we get to watch it on the EPL on ESPN sport or, or, or NBC sports, because like, I wish we could watch Spain on NBC Sports. I wish that the Liga and, and Liga and, and uh, 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 the Italian league Serie A were all in the United States as easily as the EPL because then people would be able to like have a whole different swath of like teams that it's they a, could choose to support. Sh- 
it's a very different experience, you know, being an EPL fan and a secondary, you know, viewer of other continental leagues. It's a huge different experience in the United States watching EPL versus anything else. I wake up and there's, you know, I turn on NBC Sports and these other sub channels and, you know, I can just watch any of basically a dozen, you know, half dozen games and I can log onto my computer and watch all the other games. It's just the easiest thing in the world. I have to go track down any other game that I want to see on, you know, to see if it's on some be in streaming service or something. So sorry to get like sidetracked there, Ernesto, but if you want, I don't know if you have anything else you want to add on this, because obviously we don't know what the next, you know, we know kind of generally what the next year could look like, but we don't actually have any more facts, you know, to talk about, right? Like this investigation is ongoing. Yeah. I think the investigation that, 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 that that's ongoing if it concludes to the, the, the strongest charge that you'll see the Swiss try to go and and and, and put on Mr. Akalefi would be uh, private uh, private uh, private bribery, which would be punishable up to three years imprisonment uh, or a higher penalty. I think in addition to the the criminal charges to the individual Mr. Akalefi, he would probably be suspended from 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 being the CEO of PSG if these for- charges were formalized. Um, I think that kind of goes into maybe three quick points that I think would happen in the future regarding PSG and Mr. Akalefi based on just the sheer amount of connections that they have with, P- with, with, with Qatar and the, the sort of road that we're going down that we're realizing that a lot of the deals that the Qataris have made in the past 10 years have been uh, in very gray areas, right? And so I think the first is, pol- is PSG instability. Uh, with the suspension of of, of Al Khalifi, if if these charges are formalized, the FIFA Fair Play violations, if they're not able to put those on, if they're not able to to meet the demands or, or the requirements under FIFA Fair Play, and if these uh, allegations of corruption with respect to the actual payment uh, or the purchase of Neymar come out to to, to 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 fruition, I think that we'll see a heavy, heavy, heavy level of instability at PSG that could rem- that could result in a fire sale of players uh, and you would see PSG dramatically drop in, in level uh, in, 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 in competition level mm-hmm. within the next five years, depending on how this goes. The second is uh, something that's already happened is that president Sarkozy is currently also being investigated in France based on his role in a lot of transactions that he had with, with, um, with, with the Qatari government because there were millions of dollars siphoned off uh, from these deals. And so that much, is yeah, that true? So that that's, that's what's going on. I actually I, haven't been had following that. I have not heard of that at all. <laughs> Good God. Jesus. Yeah. So that's there. And then the last the last big point, and I think this is a really big point. We didn't touch on it too much, and, and this is much more international affairs related than anything else, is that Qatar right now, what they're doing, and there was a fascinating article in The National, which is a UAE um, newspaper, that discusses the role that Qatar uses with respect to its money. Right. And so, as we know, Qatar right now is kind of in a bind in the Middle East because it's sort of been isolated by the other Middle Eastern countries politically because they they've been alleged to support uh, terrorist organizations and, and, and extremists. And so a lot of the problems that Qatar has is that some of these things are done through charitable organizations or through individuals themselves. Hmm. And so the way that Qatar, their their foreign diplomacy or their diplomatic sort of uh, uh, silver bullet so far has been soft power, right? Soft power diplomacy through, you know, the purchasing and support of Western projects, of Western ideals, so to speak, of Western uh, development, anything 
to that effect where they can use their money to sort of curry favor with France, which is what that article was about, um, with Western leaders, so that when that gray area comes up where Qatar has been involved in, there's some benefit of the doubt given to the country, right? And so they see PSG right now as an extension, as a diplomatic extension of that soft power, where if PSG is in the news for all the right reasons, if Neymar being purchased for $222 million, setting a record, is in the news for the right reasons, and this team goes on to win something like Champions League, Qatar sees that as a win in the soft in the soft diplomacy, the soft power diplomacy um, uh, mechanisms that they're looking to implement and making their money work. They see these things as an investment, right? As an investment in the image of Qatar and in the strengthening of diplomatic relationships through something as simple as football, which is mind-boggling, but in reality, that's that's what is going on. Right. That's and why it's, And it's not is, just right PSG, but it's also the sponsorship deals that they have with a number of other clubs, most notably, right, they're the shirt sponsors for Barcelona, which is which makes yeah. the entire Neymar saga that much more incestuous with uh, the different Qatari players involved. Yeah, and I and, and the more the more we see it's like the World Cup bid. The more that we begin to see all the links to these gray areas, to these payments that may not be at face value um, illegal, but we see a lot of red flags. And as those red flags begin to pile up, it's going to be more difficult for Qatar to continue to use its money to develop this soft power diplomacy. And with that weakening, you'll see a strengthening in this opposition to these type of payments. And I think that's what FIFA Fair Play is very is, is going to play a very crucial role, is that if FIFA Fair Play really lights this up and says this is unfair you can't have a country owning a team and basically creating you know right now psg would be the de facto Qatari national team you can't do that that sort of uh, message will will uh, will 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 pass on to to the authorities and so i think what you'll see and, and this is a much bigger implication than just football is a weakening of the ability for Qatar to sort of rely on mm -hmm. soft power diplomacy through investments in sports teams and things like that to well, I, I have no doubt that the very serious, the very non-corrupt FIFA and UEFA is definitely going to get right on that. <laughs> I also, I'll also note that you said that like it's like a, a, a team sort or a country sort of owning a team, but it's not like that at all. Like if a sovereign is wealth that. Phone fund is owning PSG, that's no, literally what's happening. It's the same thing with Manchester City. Like, it's the same fucking thing. It is an actual sovereign wealth fund that is actually just pumping all of this oil money into these teams. It's fucking ridiculous. It's literally what financial fair play was about. I can't believe that we're even arguing about it. But here no one is so, arguing, Evan. <laughs> not here. Not here, but they are in Europe, I guess. <laughs> yep, so I think it'll be an interesting story, and I think it'll it'll really sort of I, – I think that it's so – the the fate of the of Qatar in respects to its its soft power diplomacy is very connected to PSG and it'll be interesting to see what happens in the, in the future. Yeah, and so from one uh, type of nationalism or national connection to another, I'm interested to talk to you both about. Um, so what's going on in Catalonia, and and um, obviously this is uh, has a direct impact on my you know life and my my family and my team, um, but also it just has a it. it I think, um, and, and I'm interested to get your guys' take on this, but I, I think it has an impact on, on kind of global sports even more generally than that. Like, I think it, especially, so like, just let's just quickly run down um, 
you know, where where everything is with the Catalan situation. So basically what happened is that after, you know, a, a, a lot of different kind of de-escalatory moves leading up to last week, um, the Catalan parliament um, decided to declare, unilaterally declare independence. And where, burn that shit down. <laughs> right. Where all of the anti-independence, the, the unionist, or I, I think I almost rather call it secessionist, but I think that's the better way to think of it. So the anti-secessionists marched out of Parliament before the vote. So they made this vote um, on Friday. Uh, and the series of things that happened after that were basically that the Spanish Parliament in Madrid invoked Article 155 of the Spanish Constitution, which uh, allowed um, sing- uh, the, the Madrid government to invoke single party rule over and, and, and control over the Catalan uh, state or this Catalan province and dissolve the Catalan parliament um, and, and fire the Catalan president, which is um, Article 155 basically just grants the governing body in Madrid the power to uh, prevent this exact kind of thing, secessionist movement. And like, this is exactly what you expected, but we all expected the next move to be after the Universal Declaration, the, you know, in the, the Independence Declaration. Everyone kind of knew this was coming. And it, when it came, everyone kind of shrugged it off. But, like, you know, what ended up happening is now it's in total limbo in Catalonia. And uh, what that means for, I think, on a sporting level, what that means is there there is actually a clause in uh, the La Liga bylaws that prevent foreign teams from playing in La Liga. But because luckily, I mean, luckily, but because the way that kind of Europe looks at the situation Europe doesn't recognize Catalonia, right, uh, as a country, and Spain doesn't recognize Catalonia as a country. We're not looking at a situation where any teams are going to be kicked out of La Liga. Um, That being said, this is a really crucial and pressing situation. And I think that why I wanted to bring it up, Ernesto, is I'm interested in your position on this. But what I've said before was if this were to happen, my, my feeling is that it pushes us closer to what we, we've talked about a little bit is the um, European Super League. And the European Super League is an idea that's been floated around before, which is basically taking the top teams from each of the domestic leagues and creating a single European league that would kind of supplement the Champions League and take over from domestic leagues where only the best teams would play each other in a cross-inter-European competition. I mean, it's it's ultimately those type that that concept that ideal was actually one that was pushed um, about four or five years ago is when it was introduced. Uh, when the discussions came up that some European teams were just some European leagues were significantly weaker, right? So, for example, France uh, Ligue 1 is not anywhere close to the level of competition at the Prem or La Liga, and it has an imp- an adverse impact on some of their top clubs, right? And so. Um, as you had mentioned, Barcelona is a very fascinating team. I think it's part of the reason why it's one of the most famous teams, if not the most famous team in the world, is because of its unique identity that it has with um, its its with its region, which is Catalonia, which you know for hundreds of years has sort of been its own sort of uh, na- nation, not national, it's, it's its own identity, right? It has its own identity, right. its own language. Its own history uh, based on its own its own people, and so what's interesting is that Barcelona encapsulates not just a very good Spanish football team, but it also is 
sort of the identity for Catalonia, for a large part of Catalonia, because Catalonia has other teams, but with Barcelona, what they've done is not, as the profile has risen of FC Barcelona, because there was a period of time where they weren't that great, right? Yeah. Um, now, you know, as they've risen to be this global image, inherently what it pulls with it is the identity of Catalonia, right? If you're a Barcelona fan and you see, you know, Mesquim Club, the first thing that you think is, what does that even mean? And why is it called that way? Oh, that's Catalan? What is Catalan? Ah, it's a reason in Catalonia. Oh, okay. And you automatically, this thing becomes sort of a promotional tool for Catalonia, right? Barcelona, when I went to, I went to Barcelona a few months ago, everywhere you go, every shop, every tourism shop, you have La Sagrada Familia, you have Parguel, little figurines, you have El Cagón, which is this little like doll that they have, right? And then you have Barcelona jerseys, you have Messi jerseys everywhere. You have, I mean, people go to Barcelona specifically to watch football team, which is doesn't happen in very many countries in the world. And right. Barcelona is a beautiful city. And so I think what happens with FC Barcelona is that if let's say in you know let's say Catalonia somehow is able to break off and create its own its own its own uh, its own country right and it obtains the very very difficult uh, international recognition which not many you know, the last country to receive that was South Sudan it's it's very difficult to receive um, at that point you have essentially the Liga is is dealt a very ma- a massive blow yeah and they're they're probably one of their most profitable teams leave. And so what would happen there is I think there would be an incentive for Barcelona to at least look to see what other possibilities there were. And if Real Madrid is in a league without Barcelona to run things like El Clasico, it becomes very difficult for them to sort of not justify looking into something like a super league. Yeah. Right? And all of a sudden, everything else in Europe is pretty much, apart from this the Brexit movement, everything in Europe for the most part has always been since the rise of the European Union, was this sort of globalization, the elimination of unnecessary borders, the free movement of people internally within the EU, right? And so if that, if you take that ideal and you apply it to football, why not have a European sort of league, right? A European league where you have the yeah. four best play teams from every league and you play that and it'll be incredibly lucrative, yeah. right? I mean, you, you're talking billions, billions. I mean... Who doesn't want to see, you know, the Champions League every, matchup every week too? It's not just the boring Champions League matchups too. And like, and another thing that I would I would mention, right, is that people undersell. So there are two things that people undersell about that situation. First of all, people oversell the chance that Barcelona would just join another national federation. I think there's essentially no chance that Barcelona would after so. And Evan, we we should talk briefly about this, but both Evan and I have discussed, we've discussed this previously, not on the show, but like together, that neither of us think that it's likely at all that Catalonia is going to get some sort of, you know, independent country without really immense bloodshed. And I just don't see that happening. Not, not really. So the, 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 the future of this situation is very, very much up in the air. And, you know, I, I don't know what, what the future holds, but if, 
you know, and, and, and so given that, like, I don't think it's a very likely situation that FC Barcelona is going to join another federation. So, and, and by that, what I really mean is this. If the circumstances arise that would require FC Barcelona to look for another federation, the circumstances have also simultaneously arisen that would require Real Madrid to look for another federation because the, the, the rights to watch Real Madrid games will have devalued so much because... El Clasico is the most watched event in the world other than the World Cup final. Like, it is more than the Super Bowl. It's more than anything. And the rights to watch La Liga are hugely bound up with the rights to watch El Clasico. So if Barcelona is looking for another league, so is Real Madrid just so that they can play Barcelona. I, and so that's why uh, I, I really don't think there is an eventuality that is Barcelona joining the French League. Which So, for example, I saw, I saw an article... On a Barcelona what a stupid site. idea. Is so, is I know, I know, I know. I know. Barcelona should join the Yo, French let me t- League. Hang on, let me dunk on this article. I saw a Barcelona, an article about Barcelona joining the French League on a Barcelona site. Uh, on, actually, it's SB Nation's Barcelona site. And I don't mean to like pick on this one guy because I've heard this before. But like one of the arguments is like Barcelona would face less biased referees. And that's For absolutely long fucking long. nonsense. And anyone who's watched Spain knows that the referees are just bad and they're not bad towards one team or another. Like it's just like the idea that Barcelona gets particularly biased refereeing is, is absolutely garbage, but also like it's a catastrophe of an idea for Barcelona because again, both Barcelona and Real Madrid would lose hugely by not playing each other. No, I mean, let's be clear. Like the, the, the solution on that end, if Catalonia some, you know, pulls off this unlikely maneuver and becomes independent, I think much, much, much more likely is La Liga finds a way to change its bylaws and include yeah. Barcelona in, in La Liga and it becomes a transnational league. Like that is significantly more likely than Barcelona joining a transnational league. Um, and, and, but I think, you know, that would be one of the options on the table. And another option on the table is the European super league, which I'm on record as being against. I think it's not, I I just don't think it's a great idea, but a lot comes down to the details of how you organize it. Um, I think that because it's so unlikely that Catalonia actually pulls this off, what is more interesting to me is in the interim, kind of while this thing plays it out, whether or not political pressure comes down on Barcelona from one side or the other to perhaps stop playing in Liga, right? Let's say that things do La get Liga, feistier right. between, or La Liga, like let, let's say that things do get feistier between uh, Catalonia and Madrid. There's, you know, some amount of violence in the streets, you know, do Barcelona separatists or, or, or Catalonian separatists say, well, no, Barcelona, you shouldn't be playing in La Liga. Look, they have a clause that says, uh, no foreign teams. You're a foreign team now. You shouldn't play. You should bow out. And and you try to make a political point that way, um, which would be also an economic point, right? You would be literally trying to hit La Liga and Spain um, in the pocketbook because it's like you said, it's very lucrative. So that's just one situation right. where Barcelona could get dragged into this whole conflagration in a way that it probably, you know, it it it's in a tricky position because Ernesto, you talked about how bound up Barcelona's. Uh, success and its own identity as a club is with Catalonian nationalism. Um, and I think it likes that, right? It likes yeah. the positive that comes from all of that. But it likes the money. Yeah, yeah no, you're right. The money that comes from it, right? It loves the money and it loves that this makes them loved and respected and watched. Um, what it's not going to love is when they're asked to make sacrifices exactly. on behalf of the movement. No, right? when and they're trying to get, when they have to get down with the struggle, and the struggle means they make less money or have, right. have to cancel games. That's a crucial point, I think, Evan. I just, I actually hadn't really de- like dealt with that on, on an intellectual level because really what you're saying is 
as soon as, and really as soon as this weekend it could have happened, Barcelona, any activist who is a Barcelona fan and a Catalan nationalist and believes that what happened on Friday, which is what everyone in Catalan, like every, all the nationalist secessionists were celebrating was that uh, the creation of what they understand to be a Catalan state Anyone who is on that of that political persuasion and a Barcelona fan should be calling on Barcelona to no longer play in the Spanish league because they are a foreign team living in a foreign country, not bound and not playing within the Spanish league. I I actually think that it's very you know it, it it may not be something that they're thinking about, but it's something that they're they actually will be presented with because. It really is a thing that, that, that they're, they're going to have to think about if like their board and their fandom re- you know, really requires them to take a stance. And Barcelona are not – I mean, Barcelona – Real Madrid, for example, is not – like they're associated with Spain and a lot of people in Spain want to claim them. But more than anything – and I, I, I know this from conversations with people at Real Madrid and people like – you know, who, who, who know a lot of people with Real Madrid. Real Madrid do not see themselves as a uniquely Spanish club. They see them as a, themselves as a very much a global brand. And I, I cannot imagine that Barcelona doesn't see themselves that way. And so on some level, Barcelona would have to decide whether they want to be this kind of global brand, brand superpower, or whether they want to have this particular political nationalist stance well, it, that would require kind of global, them to harm gl- their brand. Well, it's kind of globalization meets nationalism, right? They've they've profited a lot off the nationalism when it was kind of a subnational group, um, but you know, you're this is going to bring to a head like which is more important to you, Barcelona? Is it being a globalized international capitalist marketing system, um, or is it being the Catalonia nationalist team? Because you, you're not going to be able to be both under these kinds of political pressures. Yeah, and it's interesting, though, Evan, because obviously the Catalan nationalist drive is not just being a, driven by like some sort of communist force on the left. It's actually being just kind of a, across the ideological spectrum of belief in Catalan nationalism. But I think what's interesting, and just to tie it back to Ernesto, uh, what we were talking about earlier, is that Barcelona may have in the early 2000s or in the late 90s and previously been very much willing to make this sacrifice when they've made the series of deals that led to them putting a sponsor on their jersey and tying themselves into this Qatari you know, wealth uh, organism. I wonder whether they've surrendered some of that moral you know, credibility to, to do this or whether they've kind of tied themselves into this global movement in a way that would prevent them from, you know, backing out of it. That's an interesting point. I think ultimately with, with Barcelona, what caught up to them was just the nature of the nature of, uh, of the sport, right? Is that, is that ultimately that was a lot of, of real estate missing from that, from that shirt that they could somehow be able to monetize and enable them to pick up the best players in the world to continue to do so. Um, what's interesting is that, that that moment was a big deal, right? Because Barcelona was one of the last teams, last made it was, it was the last major team um, in the world that didn't have a sponsor across the front of their jerseys for a long time. And people in Barcelona and Catalonia took a lot of pride in, in that. And so, as they should have, I think it was. I I mean, look, I junked, I joked about it and dunked on it a little bit because, of course, they did have it on the back of their shirt. But whatever, like I, I do think that they they should have. Have and and like when they finally did get a sponsorship, it was UNICEF, right? And like, right. Sorry, go ahead. 
no, no, you're right. That that the UNICEF thing was was sort of the you know the negotiation point where everyone's like, oh, that's amazing. That you know the part of the proceeds that they get, they're going to give to UNICEF to charity. That's that's fantastic. And then they you know switch a route, and all of a sudden it was you know a, a Middle Eastern airline, and now it's yeah, it was great actually. It was so classic. They they went from UNICEF to the Qatar Foundation, and then that was yeah. two years, and then it was Qatar Airways. No, you could right. just see how that was storyboarded on you know yeah. talking points for a few conference calls <laughs> uh, to to you know decide whether or not this was you know the 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 brand would survive this change. I I, I think it's interesting. What what I will what what I will think is interesting is the impact that this will have because I think that we're all in agreement that the route in which Catalonia separates itself from Spain to the point where Barcelona is formally notified that they will no longer be part of La Liga unless there's an amendment made to La Liga is very unlikely. What I am interested in, in seeing is that Catalonia produces a lot of very good football players in Spain and it will be remain to be seen whether those players will continue to want to sort of honor their right. commitment to the Spanish national team, which is a huge deal, right? I mean, if, and I think, you know, obviously the players right now, you, the one that's, that, that comes to mind first and foremost is, is Piqué, right? Piqué's very sort of very, very proud of being from, from Catalonia. He wears his heart on his sleeve with, with his opinions of the Spanish government. And I think that the way that the Spanish have dealt and will continue to deal with Catalonia may have a potential adverse effect in the long run with respect to players deciding to wanting wanting to play with with Spain right and I think that would have a really serious impact on on the Spanish Football Federation as a whole um, especially because Spain has, has sort of you know they had a golden age that was unparalleled right the World Cup the European champion the, the European uh, the Euro Cup and and then the you know they they just had a very very strong run um, with respect to with respect to the other competitions that they played in for for that for that period of time I believe it was around 2010 uh, yeah and I I really am interested to see what type of impact this would have on the local players in Catalonia they come out of the canteras of, of Barcelona and of the other the other teams because because there 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 are other you know very right Espanol is is actually but, one of the famous. Catalan teams and obviously Girona who played this weekend. Um, but he, all right, so we we don't have a ton more time, and I don't want to keep you too late because obviously we're recording this late and it's like quite late in oh. Paris. But I I um I would also note that so really quickly before we transition to our our last topic, and I don't think we have that much to say about the last one. But uh, really quickly, I would note that PK did say that he believes that you can be a Catalan Catalonian. And also play for the Spanish national team, and that's why he's not giving up his, you know, place on the side. And that's I think going to be instructive for the way because like it's hard to be a Catalan player and choose yourself to and at that point say no. Also, I got to tell you, like there are not actually that many players on the current Spanish national team that are Catalan, all Catalan, right? So like, I can't. Other than PK, it's not an obvious. There's not an obvious one. I guess Jordi Alba, on the uh, on the right. But like that's there's not there's that Busquets. many. Busquets, Busquets, obviously, yeah, that's a good point. Busquets, um, but no, like but no, you're completely right that it's not. You know, they're not. Seven this isn't the, the Catalan generation that the 2010 team sort of was. Um, but that that still would really cripple this team if if that happened. Um, all right, let's. Um, and I I totally agree. That's that's an interesting 
sub you know narrative to follow going into the next national conflicts. All right, last last um, last topic, and uh, because I don't want to keep you too late. Uh, so the uh, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, even months ago, maybe now, um, we and we didn't get into it really last time you were on the show, and then you know whatever. But the Spanish FA has had its own corruption saga involving no. <laughs> <laughs> involving the arrest of the president of the federation Villar and um uh, a couple other people and i'm interested to hear if you ernesto know uh i i would i think it'd be great and really instructive to educate you know or, or explain to our listeners exactly what happened in spain sure and and with the spanish fa what's interesting is i think we did touch on this uh the last time i was on here is that in my in my grand grand scheme, in my grand anti-corruption battle against FIFA, <laughs> the, the football federations are where you'll start seeing the dominoes falling because this is a perfect example yeah. of national government going after its own national citizen that it put in charge of a football federation that was partially sponsored by the government, right? And so here we have Villar, who has been, he for some background, uh, Villar, it was the Spanish FA, the Spanish uh, Football Federation president from 1998 until 2017, until maybe a few months ago. So that is a long tenure. I, I believe it's the longest tenure in in Spanish football history. I just want to note uh, also that anyone that has that long a tenure in this job, it, yeah, you're going to have some issues. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. You're <laughs> 100% right. Uh, to add to that point, actually, that's a great point that you mentioned. He was also a senior VP at FIFA, and he was, I believe, sanctioned for yeah. his refusal to cooperate with the investigation. Yeah, he didn't turn uh, over any of the documents uh, that were requested, and he was sanctioned for that. Yep. Very typical. Um, apart from that, he was a former football player for the Diego Bilbao, and he played for the Spanish national team. So uh, the Spanish uh, Guardia Civil uh, arrested him, uh, Mr. Villar, his son Gorka Villar, and three other football officials uh, when they conducted a Don raid at the Federation headquarters in Madrid. Uh, so his son, uh, Gorka, was arrested on embezzlement and fraud charges. Uh, the, other, the other charges that they have are in, improper financial management of Spanish FA assets, <laughs> falsifying documents, private corruption, and misappropriation of assets. In connection, this is crazy, to Spain national friendlies. And so... Yes. And so what's interesting is that um, the, the, the crux of the investigation of the corruption investigation against Villar is that he used well, two things that he did. First, he uh, he was up for reelection relatively soon. Right. And so he the, the, the F.A. the Spanish uh, the Spanish Football Association president is voted on by the 14 regional presidents the, re, the, the of each region in Spain. Yeah. And so each one has a vote. And so he used. Um, Spain FA money to secure votes from regional Spanish presidents in order to obtain that in order to obtain his reelection, right? And so, um, with with basically with with that, what he's doing is that he is essentially trying to bribe these officials around Spain in order to all consolidate behind him, and not just behind him, but behind his his sort of cabinet, right? Right, and, and gain support throughout the. And what's really fascinating about this case is that this investigation started about uh, – oh, and then, sorry, the second component that he made was that his son Gorka, uh, who's a lawyer, 
he had a company called Sports and Advisors. It was a consultancy agency. And what he would do, or what he's alleged to do, to have done, is that he would set up Spanish friendlies with other federation presidents, uh, you know, Spain against whoever, South Korea, I think was one that was mentioned in the investigation. Yeah, I think so. And with these friendlies, they would these things would set up business transactions with his son, with officials from whatever country was playing Spain. So they were done sort of with an ulterior motive of being able to sort of garner garner favors for his son and his company, Sports and Advisors. So those are the two main things that this guy was, was had done. Uh, what's what's interesting about this case, which is called the Caso Caso Sule, I think is what they're calling yeah. it in the media, is that. This guy and his associates, the one associate is, is Juan Padron, which was the economic vice president of this of the Spanish Football Association. These guys had their phones tapped and they knew they had their phones tapped, but they thought that they were tapped for some other random reason by some small lo- lower level court. So they would actually mock the authorities on the phone. Not <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. I didn't know. I didn't even know that part of this. Just a just a bit of like general legal advice that's not actually legal advice for everywhere. Everyone, if you are wiretapped, say nothing but nice things about the court. Yeah, yeah let's yeah let's not be mean on on wiretapped phones. And so uh, what's so the the real sort of tidbits of information that we've gotten that were included in the indictment of the Guarda Civil is um, these literally just quotes where they talk about how. They need to. They how people need to vote and how they need to get people to vote. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I wanted to get into this because it wasn't just them that talked about that. And actually, Marca uh, published an expose recently of not just like Padron and different people talking, but also implicated in this was was Tebas and the current president. And what was fascinating to me is some of the question, some of the things that were being said were really, 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 really incriminatory, and they haven't popped up yet. In, in any conversations that I've seen about this, including stuff like, uh, well, how do you want the referees to vote or how do you want you know, the referees to act and, and how do you want the ref- what do you want the referees to do? And they're saying stuff like, well, they're going to vote with us, I promise. You know, I got them all their jobs. They're not going to abandon us, that kind of stuff. And it's, it's, it's really fascinating like to hear this kind of discussion so openly and the idea that these people would have any knowledge that they were being taped and still said that speaks to like the absolute volume, like the, the, I just, it's, it's, it's shocking. The, the feeling that these people must've had, right. Of being totally invulnerable. It's insane. And, and, and for example, Juan Peron, one of the things that he got caught saying is that he, what he was saying in this translated, he talks about, uh, the presidents, which are the territorial presidents, yeah. the presidents, they'll say what I they'll, they'll do what I tell them to do because right. I'm the person that puts them in their positions. And I'm the one that takes them out after 32 years. I'm the one in charge. Right. 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 Then right. Right. Exactly. There's like another quote where Viad goes, uh, they better know who to support for this candidacy. Anyone that goes against me and I win the election is gone. Right. Designers. Right. right. And, like, and my understanding was the referee like vote in the, because the referees, I understand, also vote in this. We're also implicated in that. Oh, yeah. They. Uh, and so what what's interesting is the region. So, for example, the president of the, the, the Murcia Football Federation, the president of the Balear Football Federation, they you know, the president of the Balear Football Federation actually says we decide who wins and who doesn't. 
the coaches and the referees vote for whoever I say they need to vote for or I'll have them removed. Right. I mean, it's it's not sort of we don't have to make the inference here. Right. That there was sort of, of, of pressure, <laughs> a new pressure and that pressure being supported by the fact that these, you know, these territorial uh, presidents, these territorial football presidents were receiving some sort of benefit right. from um, <laughs> Villar, who, who was the, the, the old guard of, of the Spanish Football Federation. I mean, like you mentioned, this guy was in office for, you know, uh, almost 30 years. It's, it's you know, you, you gain a level of understanding with these guys that enables you to talk this way and to essentially, you know, and, and, and so the other interesting part about Marca, uh, you had mentioned the news article there, is that Villar, on top of supporting these football federation presidents, he also would ensure that the employees that worked for him or that favored him or that were able to provide him with uh, support in any type of any type of manner would receive higher salaries. So he controlled right. how much people were being paid and you would find really disproportionate uh, salaries. So, for example, the director of the Museum of the Spain Football Federation was receiving 80,000 euros, which is 640 euros less than what the current president, Mariano Rajoy, makes. As <laughs> Right. And so it's insane. And so, you know, pretty much the indictment that that the that the Guarda Civil is 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 is, is putting forward is that Villar promoted and awarded high salaries to certain senior positions. He, quote unquote, made people rich. That was from his quotes. Right. And that essentially he created this level, the system of cronyism. And this cronyism t- took place in a public, uh, a publicly owned, a public utility entity that receives state aid and whose officials are obliged to watch over. And are responsible for the correct direction and the transparency of the football federation, right? And so both it's just of those fucking absurd. I mean, like Evan, like have you? I mean, like <laughs> we we discussed this stuff, but like the way that Ernesto just laid that out, like all of this history of corruption occurring, not just like currently, but like these people like totally not giving a shit that they were being interviewed, that they were being wiretapped, like none of this. And on top of it, they are a publicly supervised utility by the government. They knew that the people were going to be looking at that. I mean, like it's fucking nonsense. No, but I mean, corruption like that only happens when people know about it, but are just kind of cool with it. Right. Right. Um, Like that, that's, that's what you learn from all this. You learn that, um, it was more than just an open secret. It wasn't even secret. It was just the way that things were done in football. And it's been the way things are done in football for decades. And, you know, that's kind of what's so ridiculous. You know, we go back to the stupid review of the stupid FIFA movie. But like that was what was so ridiculous about the movie is it treated it as a matter of course that, oh, well, we just do things corruptly. That's how we do it. Right. And the fact that these guys thought they were going to get away with everything, they could just talk about the way they were and that no one was ever going to care. Like it's just the same attitude that it doesn't matter. I'm not going to get prosecuted. This is how business is done. And I'm entitled to make some amount of money off of my position. Um, and like that's been unacceptable in pretty much every other kind of part of you know society for a long time. And it's about time that it becomes unacceptable in football too. I, I have no idea. I would be fascinated for like a sociologist or someone to do a study to tell me why football is different. <laughs> like what is so special about the football industry to have made it so susceptible to open corruption 
um, as opposed to other industries, or maybe right. it does happen in other industries, and I'm just really naive. But it does. It seems like it's more blatant here. I don't know. It does seem yeah, way more blatant, right? Like of anything. And like I would also say, Evan, it wasn't a stupid review of the FIFA movie. We were, you know, we did a very good and normal review of the FIFA movie while we're all drunk and and laid into <laughs> it as the way it should have been laid into because it was terrible. But yeah. So I, it was extremely blatant, and it was so blatant, just to be clear, just not to plug that, review, that, that episode again, but like we, part of the big talking points from watching that movie was how they couldn't even like sanitize the corruption in that movie. Like They literally, the Tim Roth playing Blotter character, they literally said, like, this is the guy that's going to find us the money, right? Like it's, They yep, couldn't yep, even yep. sanitize these people. Yeah, no, they just had to pretend like it was, there was an upside to the corruption. Like, oh, this is how we grow the sport is through corruption. Um, and we have to get the small countries on board through corruption. Like, they just make it seem like a positive. And when you take that perspective, because FIFA fucking made that movie, like, they decided <laughs> that that's the narrative. Um, like, it makes perfect sense why the federations follow FIFA's lead and do the exact same thing. Right. Right. What's interesting about the, the federations, and this goes back to the original point, is that unlike FIFA, where they can sort of hide behind this idea that they are a uh, multinational corporation that cannot be touched by any sort of single jurisdiction. What we have here is an instrumentality, right? You have a, a organization that was created uh, in order to carry out a public service, which is this is carrying out of, of the responsibilities and the roles of conducting uh, football matters under the, the Spanish Football Federation. And, you know, one of the, one of the most striking, uh, one of the most striking phrases that the Guarda Civil and their indictment continued to use when they discussed this was that what Villar essentially did was he created a law of silence that worked for 29 years where everyone just told his line, did what they were told. And I'm sure that everyone ate very well in particular because Spain was had a very successful run during that period. And it's, you know, that that's, that's, that's the issue that you have, not just in football, but in corruption in general, where you have people in power that are just institutionalized in those positions where they can essentially pay off people and keep them happy and keep them in the dark and create this law of silence. And if you speak out, then you're gone. And that's it was blatant in here. And and it goes just again to, to give you another example of how comical this was. Um, the football players on the Spanish national team for every big event, every big win, qualification to a World Cup, the winning of the World Cup, they would receive uh, watches, like very expensive watches. And so initially, these would be given to the players, presented to the players by IWC. IWC would give them the watches directly, and you know that would be the end of it. Villad assumed control of the handing out of these watches, which were uh, about 28,000 euros each, and changed it so that he and his directors, the people that he curried most favor with, would receive these watches. And there was an instance twice, actually. <laughs> oh my God. This is good. Twice, uh, there was 36 watches from IWC given because there's 36 uh, squad players for a World Cup team, right, including the reserves. And Villar took, took eight, right, which meant that eight of those players were left without watches. Including, <laughs> it's comically bad. This comically corrupt. They literally stole from the players. It's not even stealing from like the companies that broadcast like they literally stole from the players yeah including david de Gea, which is a, a big time player right it wasn't just <laughs> Sorry, and it's insane it, it honestly is insane and so what's what's what what the potential i guess implications of this is is that 
they've been charged with five different five different crimes, right? Um, one of the big ones is um, is 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 the corruption charge. And in addition to setting up these Spanish friendlies in a way that uh, Villad's son would be able to curry favor and to enter into these uh, transactions with other companies or other you know entities in different in different countries where where these friendlies were being held, he also um, allegedly used Spanish FA funding to influence uh, other football federations in order to ensure that his son was named direct general director of 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 Coimbol, uh, South America, and Gorka Villar, which the, which was the son, did actually win that position and held it uh, in 2014 and 2016, right? And so you're seeing that this corruption, this this type of mismanagement, this type of of of, of embezzlement of, of part of it is state funds was used to maintain. Villar's people in power, including his son, right? So you have nepotism, you have uh, this this ridiculous level of cronyism and this massive, massive level of corruption. And this is just in one football federation, yeah. which it, which is one of the most, in my, in my opinion, and I'm, I don't know if you guys agree, but in my opinion, it's one of the most serious football federations, right? It's one that I would assume would, would have a, a very high level of professionalism, uh, just given the fact that it has one of the, it's in charge of one of the most prestigious uh, football leagues in the world and one of the most uh, decorated national teams in the world, and yet we and yet here we are right. discussing how this guy essentially ran uh, a 29-year corruption system that is just recently being uncovered. Um, it's 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 depressing in one way, but it also does give us sort of some some hope that you see these national organizations, these national authorities now deciding to take on these national federations and, and remove these people and hopefully uh, indict them and, and make sure that, that, that justice is yeah. served. But, you know, it's a positive step there. Yeah, right? yeah, uh, yeah, totally. And that that itself is, I think that is, if, if we're going to get a hopeful note to leave this interview on, Ernesto, I think that might be the one, considering that, like, this whole thing we've been talking about has either been like desperate, like corruption or like bloodshed in the Catalonia context. So like with that in mind, like I, I do see going forward a, you know, a, a hopefully a change in this culture, even if like not the, the U S intervention didn't like get everyone we wanted it to, or didn't quite go as deep, but we, we do see it at least the beginning of the change in the culture of dealing with some of this stuff. So anyways, I, I, I do want to say thank you so much for coming on and, and we'll obviously are going to have you back on at some point in the future, because it's not like these issues or just generally like some of these European political questions are going to go away. So thank you so much, Ernesto, for coming on. No, it was my pleasure. Thank you, Gabe. And, and, and thanks Evan, for having me on. It's always a ton of fun to talk about these things. Man, I promise. She 
she's so self-conscious. She has no idea what she's doing in college. That major that she majored and don't make no money. But she won't drop out her parents to look at her funny. Now, tell me that ain't insecure. The concept of school seems so secure. Sophomore three years ain't picked a career. She like, fuck it, I'll just stay down her and do it. Cause that's enough money to buy her a few pairs of new ears. Cause her baby daddy don't really care. She's so precious with the peer pressure. Couldn't afford a car, so she made her daughter a legacy. Yeah, and so long that it looked like weave. Then she cut it all off, now she look like Eve. And she be dealing with some issues that you can't believe. Single black female addicted to retail as well. Uh. And when it falls down, who you gonna call now? Come on, come on.